Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. After a spell working in an Obbin shop after graduation, Max Allen moved from the UK to Australia in 1992 and has become one of that country's outstanding drinks writers. His most recent book, Intoxicating, is a very personal history of booze in Australia, told through the prism of 10 very different drinks. We discuss the myth of the dry continent, how the arrival of rum changed the country forever, why Aussies love champagne, and what Aboriginal people were really drinking before the first fleet arrived. Hi Max, how are you? I'm very well. Uh, I'm a little bit nervous though about this recording because I'm currently in in a beach house (laughs) in South Gippsland which is about as, as as southerly in Australian on the mainland in Australia as you can get, and and the wind and the rain are coming through up off Bass Strait. Um, you you would know Bass Phillip wines, yeah. Uh, uh, it's one of our lo- closest vineyards, um, and at the, so if 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 you can't hear me over the rain in about five minutes, that's why. Okay, <laughs> at least we warn people in advance. Uh, that's right. You wouldn't yeah, believe yeah, yeah. I've done podcasts with people in truck stops. You know, yeah. you could hear. You could hear. <laughs> The truck's yeah. going past outside. Anyway, look, I mean, I loved your book. I mean, I'm, I'm very, very keen to talk about the book. Before we get on to that, I just want to talk a little bit about you. Uh, lots of people will know who you are, but they might not know that you're a Brit. You know, you were brought up and educated in England. You moved to Australia till 92. I just wonder now, do you feel truly Australian after 30 years or is there still a little bit of the pom in you? And I'm, when the no, cricket's I'm, on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about this a lot because it's almost 30 years to the day that I moved here. Yeah. Uh, and when I tell people that and they listen to the way I talk, they say, well, what are you talking about? You know, you, you sound, like an, sound like an Aussie. Uh, and it's not just the accent, uh, which I picked up pretty quickly after I got here, but it's, you know, I, I say g'day and I say g'day, mate, and things like that without any irony. So maybe I have become Australian. But so I've lived here more than half my life. Yeah. Um but still, yes, I, I still feel like I'm a little bit on the outside. And yeah. and that was a benefit writing this book, I reckon, because it yeah. meant that I tackled some of these topics, approached some of these stories, spoke to people still with that outsider's eye. And I think that actually helped hmm. view Australia not with, I didn't come with baggage, you know, I didn't come yeah. with, I wasn't, I, I didn't grow up here. So I mm-hmm. don't have that innate sense of Australianness, so I'm always kind of interrogate, interrogating it, I think. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I do feel increasingly connected to this country yeah. and, and uh, that exploration of, of understanding that connection was, was the heart of the book. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I agree completely that it is an outsider's take, but it's also an insider's take. I mean, it's a bit of a paradox in a way that you're, that you're both at the same time. And I'm sure what you said is right, that people probably talk to you in a way that they might not to to a to a you know a bona fide Aussie, if I may yeah, call yeah, it, yeah. if I may say it, put it that way. So I've been here for long enough to understand some of the really complicated stuff, yeah, in the book, or some of the really complicated issues that surround grog in this country, yeah. and particularly the indigenous non-indigenous story, yeah. and we'll come to that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you can only really understand that if you've if you've lived here and experienced it. I was talking to somebody actually just the other day who has a very similar background to me, moved to Australia mm-hmm. about 20, 30 years ago. And she went back recently to the UK. She works on a lot of, um, she makes films and has done a lot of films with Aboriginal people. And she goes back to the UK and says that over there, there is no understanding, no mm-hmm. understanding of Aboriginal culture or how Aboriginal culture is being uh, thought about and discussed and engaged with by white Australians now more and more and in a more complex and and potentially exciting way than it was 20 or 30 years ago it's only when you live here that you understand that yeah i think that that's that's very true isn't it i mean when you arrived in melbourne you know 30 years ago almost to the day i love this idea that you created a kind of mental map of the city through food and drink so you i can imagine you i mean I, I've, I've been to lots of bars with you in melbourne and i love it you know bar hopping in melbourne is one of the great pleasures of yeah, the world yeah. what yeah. did you do did you literally just wander from bar to bar and you know i know shop to shop smelling stuff not on purpose but don't you do that well it doesn't matter where uh, where did i go the other day um no matter where you are, yeah. isn't it the case that if you're into food and, and drink, that is that's what you do. I was in Zurich. Okay, there's a good example. I was in Zurich on a on a trip to Switzerland before the pandemic, and out of my hotel, I worked out where the closest good bar was. You know, <laughs> on the way to the closest good art gallery, and yeah. worked. At, and you know, I had a lovely lunch at the art gallery, and I was I was I was doing what I did in Melbourne 30 years ago in Zurich, even though I was Zurich. there for a couple of days. Right. Yeah. And so now when I go back to Zurich, I could find those places again and feel comfortable that yeah. I know where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I also did the same in Neuchâtel. Now, this is an interesting story. So Neuchâtel in, in Switzerland, um, very strong connection to Australia. A lot of the Swiss wine growers who made wine here in the Yarra Valley in the 1860s onwards mm-hmm. came from Neuchâtel. Mm-hmm. So when I was going to Switzerland, I spent some time in Neuchâtel, wandering around the old town, the old streets. Beautiful if you've ever been there, right on the lake. Uh, and I wandered into what I thought looked like a really great little locals bar, right? Uh, and it turns out that this is actually because then uh, uh, somebody showed me around the town later on from the from the tourism uh, council, uh, and she said, "I used to be a social worker in my previous life, and you managed to find yourself the bar where all my ex clients hang out and drink." <laughs> right? But you know perfect. what? Isn't that perfect? So, so I'm surrounded by all this, you know, old Swiss money and mansions and things, and I find the bar. But you know, and you know what? If I go back to New Chateau, I'll go straight there again. It was great. Yeah, a beautiful. That's a Gerald's bar or something. Yeah, yeah, New that's, yeah, yeah. But maybe I was attracted to it because I instinctively knew that that's where the real people hung out, yeah, not yeah. the tourists. I mean, I, I, that's one of the things I love about social media. You can put up something on Twitter saying, anybody recommend a good place yeah. to eat? You know, I was in Ferrol, which is right up at the northern tip of Galicia. I mean, not known for its wines or its food, really. Uh, it's an old military base. And, and somebody replied and said, go to this place. I went to this bar. It was unbelievable. I had like four glasses of wine and I left with the bottle of wine that the guy gave me. <laughs> yes, I was going out the door, gave me a bottle of wine. He said, you've got to try this. <laughs> anyway, listen, we're, we're intoxicating. I, I just wonder where the idea came from. And did it sort of start life as a set of series of separate as a set of separate articles or was there always this sort of overarching structure to the book so i've always so, so i've always been interested in history uh, yeah. growing up as a kid you know uh in england my grandparents lived in in northamptonshire in a little tiny village in northamptonshire so even as a as a small boy just riding around this village on my bike you know i was fascinated by how the fact that fascinated by the fact that there was an old church that dated back to Norman times, like a lot of, you know, churches in that part of the world. 
uh, and there was an excavation, an archaeological excavation happening on an old Saxon manor house in that village. Mm. So I've always been interested in history. And I've always been interested in this idea that every day you walk over country yeah. that, that has layers of history below it, right? So, yeah. I've all, you know, when I lived in West London or Brighton, mm. always wanted to find out what the history was. Mm. Um, so the first article I ever had published in a newspaper 29 years ago uh, was about Yeringberg uh, Winery in the Yarra Valley, which was established by one of those Swiss yeah. wine growers from Neuchatel. From Neuchatel, right? yeah. So yeah. I've always been kind of intrigued by that side of Australian drinks culture. About uh, almost 20 years ago, um, I thought about writing a history of alcohol in Australia Mm. uh, and it defeated me because it was just too big. You know, it's an Mm. encyclopedic topic. Mm -hmm. It's a really important part of Australian culture and I kind of shelved it. Uh, And then when I started finding out about the um, pre-European First Mm. Nations drinks, Mm. that were being researched and discovered Mm. and unearthed and talked about and written about that I thought, oh, hold on, here's here's a perfect first chapter to the book. And at the same time, there were a bunch of people using native ingredients to make gin. You know, there's the gin boom that's going on around the world. People here are using, you know, um, lemon myrtle and wattle seed and Tasmanian pepperberry in their gin. I thought, well, there's, there's the end chapter. Yeah, let's just yeah, ten drinks. That sounds about right. That's digestible yeah. for the reader and mm. easier for the for the writer to research. Maybe I should go back to that idea of a history of alcohol told through ten drinks. So that was the yeah. genesis of it. And how did you choose the ten drinks? I mean, you had your bookends, as it were, which were the two absolutely ab- Aboriginal bookends in a sense. Yeah, yeah, and, and that was really, really important um, mm. because the beginning of the book was a revelation for a lot of white Australians mm. and a revelation for me and me as well. I internationally, I, mean, I, I, I bought into the, the dry continent myth, you know, that mm. the, the alcohol was brought by, by Europeans. I mean, it was in a sense, but what it came, some of it came from Indonesia, but it came long before the first fleet got there. Long before. Tell us a bit more about the whole, the, 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 the Aboriginal drinks, if you like. Yeah. So, so the, the one that really intrigued me and that I was lucky mm. enough to go and taste um, for myself on country mm. Uh, was the the sap of the cider gum. So in in very, very early settlement of Tasmania in the 1830s and 40s, um, there there are uh, historical records of of people witnessing Aboriginal people uh, taking the the free-flowing sap that comes out of little holes in the bark or they tap holes in the bark Mm. of this particular species of eucalyptus, uh, and that sap is then allowed to ferment. So it's gathered, it's purposefully gathered, allowed to ferment and then enjoyed and the, the records say that it was it was intoxicating it, it, it created intoxication yeah. and but people. lightly so presumably yeah so i've tasted it and it yeah. tastes like the fresh sap tastes like a light lemon syrup yeah really citrusy and wispy yeah. and kind of really yeah. beautiful and uh, and as it sits on the tree or in a, in a hollow um it takes on a more of a vermouth kind of character because it's all the, the yeah. bark and the and the um, and then you can see why they called why the European settlers called it cider because mm. it had this slightly appley cider like flavour, which also shows you their cultural references at the time. You know they were yeah. used to drinking cider, um, and this 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 product this this drink uh, was called Wayalina. So it was recorded. The name of this drink was recorded. So I thought if I can go to Tasmania and taste that and and tell the story of tasting this this drink in situ. 
that would be a great introduction to the book. But yeah. there are examples in Western Australia, Queensland, the Northern okay. Territory, Victoria, yeah. all over the shop. And you do it beautifully. I mean, I, I really like, well, all of the chapters are great, but that was particularly good. I mean, it's, you know, so, so if that stuff was not particularly potent, it still got you, you know, lightly merry. You know, all these stronger things, rum, arak, other spirits, you know, brandy, gin, as well as, you know, the fortifieds, port and sherry kind of arrived with, with the Europeans. Didn't they? I mean, I couldn't believe that story that the first fleet arrived with 54,000 litres of rum on board, which if you discount the convicts who were not allowed to drink, at least legally, was 54 litres of rum ahead. I mean, they must have been pissed the whole time, were they? I mean, I don't know whether they're on board or when they got off. off well, that's, that's the thing. That's what they arrived with. And that was after yeah, exactly. months at sea. <laughs> exactly. I mean, can you imagine? Um, so, and that's the fundamental difference. So, <clears throat> spirits arrived in uh, northern Australia mm-hmm. um, with the Macassan um, uh, sea cucumber fishermen. So, there was a big trade in sea cucumbers from uh, the the Northern Territory to China mm-hmm. in the uh, 18th century, uh, 17th and 18th century. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Yolngu people in Arnhem Land had already been introduced to, to high strength spirits by mm-hmm. Macassan people who mm-hmm. were not white. European people, they were also brown people who come across the sea, and they'd established a trading relationship, mm. and the drink arrived with a cultural understanding of what the drink was, right? Mm. This is the this is the absolute key. Mm. When the Europeans arrived, grog, rum, uh, mm. and rum referred to pretty much any potent spirit at the time. It was not mm. the kind of rum, the beautiful golden mm. molasses mm. spirit that we know today. Mm. It was pretty it was really rough stuff. Um and it was basically available, not to everybody, but it was basically available all the time in unlimited quantities at a hugely high strength. So the differences between the north and the south in around Sydney, it arrived without ceremony. It arrived without rules. It arrived without any kind of sense of, of being introduced to, to a different culture in a responsible way. And that is the, the heart of the difference of oh, yeah. alcohol's introduction to this country. Interesting. I mean, and you quote Tom Gilling, a book I must read, actually, Grog, where you said, you know, suddenly this, that booze, particularly strong alcohol spirits, became an indispensable cog in the colonial economy. So it was basically woven in to the early years of, of the colony, right? For years and years, there was no currency. There was no established mm. economic order as, as, as they would have known it when they left Europe. Uh, in 1787 uh, and so the, the people who held control of the grog held the power it was used yeah. as a currency uh, yeah. which is why you had the development of a group of marines soldiers who were known as the rum corps uh, because that was their that was their nickname they controlled who imported uh, who, who brought the rum off the ships who controlled the dispersion of the rum in the colony uh, which led to the rum rebellion now the rum rebellion which every single Australian school child is, is taught at school wasn't necessarily just about the control of the rum but that was the name that it was it was given at the time there were much more complex political things going on um, but but again as a, a, this idea that every Australian school child is taught about a, a mutiny, that happens in the new colony of Port Jackson in, I didn't, can't remember the, the year, early 1800s, uh, and is told that it's the Rum Rebellion. Yeah, that that's a little seed that's planted in their brain about the role of grog in the culture that they live. Yeah. So yeah. it's a really, I mean, it's fascinating. And 
if when I was writing this book, everybody said to me, so what are the 10 drinks? Rum is going to be one of them, isn't it? <laughs> right. Yeah. right. Because it's, they were right. it's Australia. And they, of course they're right. Yeah. But I'm, you know, I'm slightly contrary. You know that. So I didn't write about the rum rebellion. I wrote about everything else to do with yeah, rum. around it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the things I like in the book, I mean, you've got the 10 chapters, but you've also got little, little sort of pauses uh, between each chapter where you make several drinks, you know, following these historic recipes, you know, you distill something you'd made from peaches. And I think the original thing before you distilled it, you described as tasting of mouse piss and rancid pork fat. I'm glad I didn't try that. But the distillate sounded okay. And, uh, you know, these drinks like Blow My Skull and Sherry Coppola. Uh, was it important for you to have a go yourself, you know, to be more than an observer, to kind of put yourself in uh, the yeah. book? Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, I'm very strongly influenced by um, the kind of the people who come before me who make history come alive, whether it's in the book or on the screen. So there's a bit of Tony Robinson in there, right? There's a bit of, you know, um, recreate. There's a bit of, um, I remember, because I grew up in West London in Chiswick, and Turnham Green was the site of a very important Civil War battle. I don't know whether you knew that. I didn't know that. The, the Battle of Turnham Green. Yeah. So when I was a kid, people would dress up as roundheads and cavaliers and recreate the Battle of Turnham Green on Turnham Green. I might be making that up, but I've got a very strong memory of that. I, I definitely remember going to battle recreation things, you know, as a kid. So I, so there's a bit of that recreating history thing. But with yeah. drinks, you know, it, if you do it well, you can actually recreate history. There's, there is a growing field of research in archaeogastronomy, I think it's mm. called, or mm. where, where you, you can walk around a town and be told about and given examples of smell and uh, a taste mm. that are literally what people used to smell and taste three, four, five hundred years ago. And it's a way of bringing the past back to life. So I wanted yeah. to kind of do that for myself and hopefully encourage people don't do the blow my skull don't do it at home because oh my god we're not the, some, not the some original of I thought, some of those i thought oh, i'm not gonna try it yeah yeah I mean, you're also a keen cider maker you know amateur stroke professional i mean you've got pretty good at it really and, oh. and i like the way you talk about it helping you to embrace a feeling of cultural connection I mean, are you connecting with england in a way cider? yeah yeah I, absolutely so I'm, I'm pouring some of this year's um cider here right now <laughs> uh, because that's that's really good podcast hold on you like get it or not? Yeah, I'm getting the fizz. It's looking. You're good getting the fizz, right? Good head on so it. So this is <laughs> this is uh, wild fermented. So I made this um, cider last year, 2021, from a heritage orchard here in Melbourne, mm. planted with apple varieties, 130 different apple varieties that originally came from Europe. Because you know there are some Australian apples, but most of them, obviously, the cuttings came here from Europe. Mm. And when we were making this cider, it just really struck me. And it's not the first time. Because apples, like grapevines, are propagated from cuttings, it's mm. the, as near as damn it, identical genetical, genetic material. So if you mm. take a cutting from Le Mans Rocher or if you take mm. a cutting from Lafitte mm. of Pinot or Chardonnay or Cabernet or whatever it is, and you plant it in, the other, in a vineyard on the other side of the world, it will taste different because of the environmental factors, the terroir, et cetera. But fundamentally, the genetic material is very simplistic the same right mm. and apples are identical so, mm. so when i pick up if i if i pick a a devonshire quarrenden apple off a tree and i make cider out of it or i bite into it mm. 
and I look at a picture that was painted. I've got a, a, an old Apple book that comes from 1821. Of course I do. And there's a, a picture of a, a Devonshire Quarrenden apple on the page that was hand watercolored by a woman in Brentford, just down the road from me in Chiswick, in 1831, I think. And if I bite into that Devonshire Quarrenden in 2021, and if Elizabeth Ronalds picked up the Devonshire Quarrenden that she was painting in 1831, and we both bit into it at the same time, we would taste exactly the same thing. Yeah. Right. Now that I find actually quite moving. I, I find that yeah. a profound connection to history. The first time I made cider from this same heritage orchard, hmm. and just put the juice in a demijohn, and and left it. Now, at that time, I'd been writing about wine for twenty years. I'd spent hmm countless hours in wineries talking to f- winemakers about fermentation, talking about wild fermentation, natural fermentation, indigenous, whatever, ambient, spontaneous, whichever word you want to choose, for years, and them saying how important it was to the expression of terroir and all those things. But I wasn't prepared for watching that juice start to bubble and having this sense of faith yeah. in the process and feeling like somebody who watched that juice that they just pressed start to bubble without any concept of what was going on in the juice, no concept of yeast or fermentation or any of those things 300, 400, 500 years ago and just having faith that it was going to happen mm. because God would make it happen. Yeah, right? I, 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 I love that idea. And I'm not a religious person fundamentally, yeah. but... There was this incredible connection to the past. To the past, yeah. It yeah. was amazing. I've kept doing it. You kept doing it. Well, I'm glad you do. I mean, um, until I read your book, I didn't realise how big a deal champagne is in Australia. It's like the seventh biggest market in the world or something. I mean, yeah. did that begin with the gold rush and just yeah. get going? I mean, so so people in the gold rush, you know, the lucky ones who found gold had a bit more dosh, I suppose. Was that the idea? <laughs> yeah, that's one explanation. So champagne was here from the very beginning. Um, well, sorry, not the very beginning, but certainly um, uh, over the really, really difficult years of the early colonies, um, mm. when when famine and uh, there were more pressing matters mm. than uh, you know where you're going to get your next bottle of, of <laughs> Krug from. Um, but uh, by the 1830s, 1840s, when Melbourne was being established, mm. champagne was shipped here and used, I love this, was used as kind of a, an enticement to go to the land sales. So people would say, ah. you know, Saturday morning, come and buy your allotment of land on the on the Yarra River, free champagne. <laughs> uh, right? So it was, but it was champagne, champagne, because there were no vineyards in Victoria at that time producing, yeah. you know, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay or anything, really. Yeah. Um, and then the gold rush happened in the 1850s. There are stories of Melbourne's muddy streets being too dangerous to walk because of the broken champagne bottles in the mud (laughs) that when the diggers from the gold fields would come in flushed with cash because of the gold they found Mm. and we're talking massive gold nuggets Mm. they'd shout the bar of course Mm. you know they'd shout everybody a drink that means they would what's the english of that i've been here for too long yeah buying you around buying you around around for the bar they'd shout the bar Um, and that word probably, I'm just thinking about it now, probably comes from the fact that you would shout. Yeah, when you literally shout and say you want, to, yeah, yeah, you want yeah. a drink. Um, <laughs> and at the end of the day, they'd stack the champagne bottles up in the corner and smash them with shovels for fun, <laughs> right? So, so Australians, now at that same time, uh, so the other big vice in Australia is gambling, right? Yeah. 
So we love our, our pokies, poker machines. Mm. We love our casinos. Our horses. Our horse yeah. races. Yeah. Uh, and champagne, sparkling wine, has always been a fundamental part of that. So I think they're va- valid reasons why Australia's always been. But actually, I was talking to a champagne um, uh, marketing guy a couple of years ago, and his very interesting insight was how many of the major events of the year, Christmas and New Year being the two most mm. important, happen in the southern hemisphere for us they happen in the middle of summer yeah so what are you going to do in the middle of it's christmas it's new year of course you're going to open a bottle of champagne but you're probably going to swiftly move on to something else if you're in london right yeah. if you're in melbourne or sydney you're going to keep drinking champagne you want because it's, flesh, right? it's the middle of summer <laughs> so i and I, he was like it was that's a, i actually think he's got a point yeah that's a very good very i think good there's point. something climatically appropriate to drinking sparkling wine in this country and you could almost say well that possibly is another reason why prosecco has become the new sparkling wine of choice in the last five years or more you know it has everywhere else of course yeah um but they're during those summer months yeah spritzes prosecco that's just what people want to drink it's easy easy to drink it's also interesting in the book i mean how often booze in the past was sold as being you know good for you in inverted commas you know people were extolling its health giving properties i mean can you imagine that now i mean you you, it'd be illegal for a start but you can't say you know booze is innately good for you i mean you know how many wineries are founded by doctors and that was fascinating. It's one of the themes of the book that works all the way through the book, isn't it? This booze being being sold as, as being something that's good for you. But people do. It doesn't stop mm. them. Um, mm. There's there's some there's a, a gin here that's made with the terpenes from cannabis, um, or yeah, no terpenes from cannabis, and they are floating very close to to the the edge of what is acceptable in in basically saying drink our gin and, and you know, you, we'll, we'll help you help your anxiety or depression. I mean, it's, mm. it, it is, people still do it. Really interestingly, since even writing the book, so it came out almost two years ago, um, I would actually now have pl- uh, puffed up that chapter with a lot about the no low trend. Yeah. So if you look at one of the main reasons why people are drinking no alcohol or low alcohol mm. wine, it's because they want to drink something that's better for them yeah that's gonna that's going to be part of their wellness inspired mm. you know mindful drinking lifestyle which is so ironic because very often those drinks are way more processed <laughs> than, i'm sure they are they're probably worse for you in a way they're they? probably no they're not worse for you necessarily mm. but it's this kind of disconnect between mm. i want something that's pure and and you you see you so you look for a non-alcoholic wine that has been through a spinning cone machine yeah. and had all the body and goodness put back in in the form of sugar and flavoring. <laughs> yeah. Like why are you doing that? anyway? Well, that's it. We're off topic, yeah. but it, it is fascinating how from the very very earliest times the the health giving aspects of wine were always a really important part of the of the deal. Mm. Not yeah. just wine, other drinks as well. Uh, and that has not gone away. That is still no. very much with us. I mean, you mentioned the, the link with natural wines. So you, you make this point that maybe one of the reasons people drink natural wines and whatever you want, have a wish you you choose to to define them, is they feel that they're in some way maybe better for them or less bad. Maybe you could say less processed again. You know, less sulfur, uh, all those sorts of things. I, 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 it's not. It's not. Um, it, it's not an inference. It's it's explicit. I've had natural winemakers say to me, and they're natural winemakers I completely respect. They make beautiful wine, 
Um, uh, but they use this word digestibility. Have you have yeah. you come across? It's not just natural winemakers; it's other winemakers too. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a French word, digest. The French often say digest. You know, it's part of it. It helps your digestive system, I suppose. Is a, is a, is the anatomical way of putting it. But this idea that because it's natural, it's more digestible. I think we're on we're on shaky ground. We're on shaky ground. Yeah. Uh, if that becomes a selling tool, yeah. Then I think we're on shaky ground too. I just I, and because that is buying into this idea that people are drinking those wines or drinking low alcohol, moderate alcohol wines because it's better for them. No, drink them because they're more delicious. Yeah, I <laughs> or think because that's... they're flat out delicious. You know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I think of you as a wine writer, but you're you're a drinks writer in a way. But you know, I've really enjoyed that chapter on on the 1930 Dalwood Cabernet Sauvignon and the way you kind of tell stories from it. You know, it's like it's like a pebble in a pool and it just ripples outwards. Could you argue that that was the beginning of the modern Aussie wine industry when it's sort of gentleman vigneron, or does it belong to a more distant past in a way? That was the the pivot point. That was kind of the 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 than they did, in a way, the 1930s, mm. certainly for, for table wines, mm. um, there had been huge promise in the late 19th century mm. uh, from the from the very early days, actually, of the 19th century when Dalwood was established. So Dalwood's mm. in the Hunter Valley, north of Sydney, uh, established by John Wyndham, English <clears throat> settler, and very much established as a... Um, a civilizing influence on the country, mm. you know this this mm. idea that when you you come to a wild, untamed native part of the world, you put in orchards and vineyards and, yeah. and Georgian houses and you know with columns and, and to, to to bring order to to this disorder, <laughs> of, of this chaos. And so vineyards were really important. Um, but by the late nineteenth century, uh, there was a very strong sense that these fine wines from mm. Australia would be. You know, become the the, the the phrase "vineyard of the empire" was was used, and and they won for, awards and all sorts of stuff. Absolutely, no, no, it was it was a fine wine vision, right? By the nineteen thirties, that had had very much dropped off, and fortified wines mm-hmm. were what was going over to the UK. A lot of it was ending up in pubs up north and being mixed with lemonade, and um, and it was a bulk fortified wine country by that point. Yeah. Uh, Australia at, at one point sent more wine to the UK than Spain or, or France uh, just before the um, Second World War. Amazing. Uh, extraordinary yeah. when we think yeah. about it. Um, and so that fine wine thing, what what fascinated me about that wine from 1930, do you remember James Burke's TV show Connections? Was it James Burke? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 James Burke. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember. In the 80s, the glass where he, all dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> huge inspiration for this book in that yeah. you take one thing or a series of things and chart how the, the invention of a seemingly innocuous thing, like the, I don't know, the vacuum flask, would lead through history to the invention of um, jet propulsion, right? Yeah. And so, so, I, that was, so this idea that in 1960, a Sydney surgeon who was fascinated and loved wine tasted mm. a wine that was made in 1930 mm. in a vineyard that was planted originally in 1830, and because he tasted mm. that wine, he planted Cabernet in the Hunter. And that was Max Lake. Right? Max Lake, yeah. who inspired yeah. a whole generation of yeah. boutique winery, winemakers around Australia, which is where we are now. Because yeah. he happened to taste that wine, yeah. it's not the only reason, but for the yeah. sake of the story, yeah. because he happened to taste that wine in Doug Crittenden's house in 1930, uh, 1960, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. We are, like, if that hadn't happened, we might not be looking, we might not be talking. Yeah. Amazing. You know, what, Just the serendipity of, of a, of a single yeah. moment, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. 
I want to talk to you about something you know quite serious, where you're you're, you're quite critical of booze companies that knowingly sell grog um, to poor and disadvantaged communities, especially Aboriginal communities, yeah, and the damage done by alcohol. I mean, you, you know, you're talking about writing to this PR person, and eventually the person just stopped replying to you, having sent you some sort of you know piss off emails back. What would force them to be more responsible? Do you think having these conversations and and writing books like this? I hope maybe. Um, I, I, it's a really fraught, and again, it goes back to what I was saying before about understanding how fraught and complex the, the nature of these relationships and histories and policies are in mm. this country. Um, so uh, I, I don't think you can, people have tried uh, bans, they've tried price ceilings, they've tried mm. so many things to address the problem at the consumption end. Mm. Um does the wine industry itself need to sit down and come up with a code of conduct? Mm. Uh, and certainly there have been codes of conduct developed and talked about when it comes to uh, equal opportunity for mm. uh, both women and now people are having the conversation about mm. people from diverse backgrounds in the wine mm. industry, which is fantastic. Diversity and inclusion, really mm. important. There's codes of conduct being developed for winery grape grower relations because mm. mm. they're, they're pretty... Uh, in, in, they're out of balance, mm. and they're so at the mercy of of uh, you know the the oversupply undersupply roller coaster that the people mm. go through. There needs to be arguably another code of conduct conversation that's had about mm. the ethical responsibility, the moral responsibility of selling grog. Yeah, uh, and th- this is a conversation that's happening globally. It's not just happening in Australia, but there are unique aspects to it. Yeah, not even unique. There are particular aspects to it in Australia yeah. that make that conversation harder to have, to be mm. honest, which is why mm. people shy away from it. It's in the too hard basket. Yeah. But I think I think a newer generation, a younger generation are going to hopefully force those conversations. I, th- I, th- I think that's very true. I have a great deal of confidence, actually, in, in the generations coming after us, really. I, yeah. I think they find those conversations easier. I mean, those conversations are never, never easy, but they're easier, I would say, to have than, than maybe we do. There's another wonderful chapter with you know a dear mutual friend of ours, Oz Clark, where you go to visit Oz in his his basement in London, where he keeps all his wine and stuff, and you taste this bottle of Kangarooge. I mean, Kangarooge, it really was a brand called Kangarooge, yep. and Oz had an old bottle, and you tasted what was it, a 1978 or something? Just, I mean, it, tell us about the tasting. It's hilarious. <laughs> So I saw, I saw uh, there was a, a, um, a documentary put out about how Australian wine had conquered the UK in the mm. 80s and 90s called Chateau Chanda. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was made by an Australian company, but it interviewed a whole heap of people, Hazel Murphy. Yeah. Um, I was on it. Uh, and Oz was on this show and he brought out this bottle of kangaroos and kind of, you know, paraded it in front of the camera. And when I was thinking about writing a story about Australia's relationship with England, Mm. over the years through wine because it's such a that's really kind of bringing my own story into it as well i thought well i need to taste this this bottle so i happened to be in the uk a few years ago three years ago um and contacted oz and said can i can you open your bottle of kangaroos for me please and he said yeah sure to be happy to you're the perfect person and he had of course arranged at least six backup bottles, just in case it was no good. Well, something other than kangaroos, I take it, right? uh, No spoiler alert, really, here. It was no good, right? I'm not going to let anything, (laughs) I'm not going to give anything away. 
but then he opened a few other things, which also led to other stories. It was a fantastic afternoon, yeah. as you can imagine. But I, but again, the whole point of the book is finding a single bottle or a single yeah. drink that can start a conversation, start a story that goes off on all these tangents. And that yeah, no, I mean, it's, it is the stone in the pool, isn't it? You know, and the, yeah, and the yeah. ripples. Yeah. I mean, you know, you and I were in Australia, you know, in in the UK at the same time in in the late. 80s and through the 90s that or the beginning of the 90s but that when Australian wine really took off and, and it was amazing the, the quality and the diversity of the stuff you could get I mean it's much harder now isn't it the kind of big booze boys have moved in a lot of the stuff that's shipped to England comes in bulk and is then packaged either in Europe or we used to be in Europe probably now but in the UK only does that depress you a bit it does a bit um because we we know what could have been given a different history the economics of it don't work, you know, just the, just the relationship of the pound to the dollar over the years or the euro to the dollar or the dollar to the dollar means that, and, and the costs involved in producing mm. Australian wine mean mm. that the wines that I'm tasting and enjoying for relatively reasonable prices, I mean, wine is expensive here because we have mm. a lot of tax. And I look at what those wines sell for in the UK and I'm thinking, why? I'm not surprised. Why would you want to buy mm-hmm. a great Australian Pinot for 50 quid yeah. when you have Burgundy at your doorstep? I can, yeah. I completely understand. And they're different wines now. Mm-hmm. Even there's so much confidence in what Australian winemakers are doing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, sorry, but I don't care that much because the more, the more they <laughs> stay more here, for you. Right? <laughs> I'm greedy. I'm greedy. Uh, and so, I mean, honestly, there is... And, and, when we're now able to travel uh, and and you're able to come over here again, mm. you know, people will look. I've, I've said this. So I, I did a book called The Future Makers 12 years ago now. And even back then, when, when the export boom was, was beginning to kind of really wane and, and people were floundering a bit, I said the best thing that could happen is that we just become really insular in a way mm. and just concentrate on what we do in Australia really, not what, you know, what they do in Australia really well and, and create this incredible, dynamic wine scene here so that yeah. people look at us from afar and go i want uh, hold on what's going on i want to part i of want that. to go there right i want to go yeah. there yeah. and I, that will create a demand yeah uh, and that's that's kind of what happened what's happening but the as i say the economics of it mean that the wines not always and there's some really interesting stuff happening in the us and the uk with mm. with smaller independent uh importers importers yeah shipping some really interesting stuff mm. it's just not there in the supermarkets yeah. I mean, I mean, China was, you know, seen as being the next great alternative to the UK boom. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not gone down terribly well, has it? I mean, do you think that's ever going to come back? I mean, were there just too many eggs in that particular basket? Yes, it will come back because the, the fundamental relationship between Chinese people and Australian people is very strong. Mm-hmm. It, it, was a, it was a brilliant piece of diplomatic warfare mm-hmm. on, on Xi's part mm-hmm. to target high-value things that Australians are proud of. So mm. beef, lobsters, wine, mm. these are cultural exports. They're not mm. just, they're not commodities, right? Yeah. So the great thing about Australian wine to China before the tariffs came in in late mm. uh, 2020, is that right? Yeah. Um, where the value of Australian wines driven by pen, Penfolds, but not mm. just Penfolds, were way higher than any other export market in the world of that mm-hmm. volume. Mm-hmm. And so it was for the Chinese to go, well, you Aussies are really, really proud of your wine. You you now have this, mm-hmm. this sense of identity woven mm-hmm. into your wine around the world. Australians will tell you that we make the best wine in the world, and it's fantastic that the Chinese are paying top dollar for it. There you go. We're going to target that. 
brilliant, yeah. absolutely brilliant, but purely political, mm. and it won't last. The new government that's been elected here last month, uh, a Labor government, is already making huge efforts to, to undo the damage that was done by the previous okay. government. Oh, well, I think good. those tariffs will be gone in a few years and China yeah. will come back again. Okay, well, that's good to hear. And what about you? What's your next project? I mean, it's going to be about a wine show, isn't it? Well, that's the next one on the cards, uh, and that's taking a little bit longer than I thought. Uh, they always also, do. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> word. Yes, they do. Um, but since Intoxicating, there's a book called Beggar's Belief, Stories from Gerald's Bar, which you've been to. We might even have been <laughs> I, there together, I, I, I think. I've been there several times with you. Yes. <laughs> well, you know Gerald's Bar very well. Um, and so uh, a few years, a couple of years ago, um, Gerald Diffie, who, who owns and runs Gerald's Bar. There's one in San Sebastian as well, which um, people may have been to. Uh, and Gerald came up to me with a couple of shopping bags full of exercise books with handwritten <laughs> stories in them and said, what do you reckon? Is there a book in this? And I said, yeah, I reckon there's a book. So I've, I've edited it, basically. Gerald's, okay. It's all Gerald's words and, and stories. Uh, and that's out at the moment. In fact, Gerald is in the UK as we speak. So Promoting his book. On, yeah, it might be knocking on your door with a copy of the okay, book. And it's called Beggar's Belief. Beggar's Belief, stories yeah. from Gerald's Bar. And it's just yeah. a good old-fashioned, you know, it's they're all about one or two pages uh, you know, long. <laughs> well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to track that down. Yeah, in definitely. the meantime, Intoxicating is out in paperback, uh, published by Thames Tem- and Hudson. Fantastic read. I mean, I really enjoyed it. It was, it was so max in a way. You know, it's just your lovely... Slightly quirky take on on Australia and on <laughs> yeah. boots, full of personal stories. A very personal book, I think. Very, but yeah. some really fascinating history. I mean, I think all that stuff about, as you said, the 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 myth of the dry continent before that before uh, the first fleet got there. Fascinating. Anyway, Max, as ever, lovely to see you. Nice to talk to you. I'll see you very soon. I hope either in Gerald's Bar or somewhere in London. Maybe not with a bottle of Kangaroos though. <laughs> Why not? There's got to be another one somewhere. If we can find another one, we can hunt it down. We're going to do it. Okay, man. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Max is the kind of guy I could talk to for hours, and he wears his learning so lightly, doesn't he? Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Sophia Burkfist from Quinta de la Rosa in Portugal. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles, and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tim Atkin and on Instagram at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.